0: You're listening to Season 8, Episode number 2 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue with the discussion, Theology of Mission, today's topic, The God Who Sins. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Well, greetings, listeners. Thank you so much for checking out another episode of Strike the Match, Season 8, Episode Number 2. We are rolling along with the topic of Theology of Mission. Hey, Advent season is upon us. I hope that your time of remembrance of our Lord's birth and anticipating His second coming and thinking about what that means for life in the present is going well for you. Uh, you. know. During this time of the year, uh, one of the verses that keeps coming uh, back to mind uh, is uh, from Galatians 4.4, 4, that God in the fullness of time sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And so if you want to get a good perspective of an apostolic God, a God who sins, Look at Galatians four, four. Right there, it is. Uh, of course, we'll get into that topic in just a moment. But um, hey, I want to give you uh, an announcement. Actually, uh, quite uh, quite an announcement that I uh, received yesterday, and I was honored to to receive it. It was definitely unexpected. And uh, that is uh, the Gospel Coalition. Uh, each year they uh, conclude uh, the year with their annual book awards. And uh, my book, uh, Apostolic Imagination, actually received award of distinction in the category of Missions and the Global Church. And so, uh, I am uh, certainly appreciative and honored to receive that uh, that award uh, among uh, so many amazing books out there in uh, the other categories uh, that they give awards to uh, at the end of the year. But at the same time, just the number of outstanding books. In this category of missions and the global church, there are so many that are out there, and i um, just, just honored to receive that. If you haven't had a chance to check out Apostolic Imagination, uh, I want to encourage you to do so. And if you are a faithful listener to this podcast, you know, I believe it was back in Season 6, I think it was Season 6, maybe a little bit of Season 7, I actually did several episodes Uh, talking through that book and teaching through uh, portions of Apostolic Imagination. The book hasn't been out that long. It only came out in February of this year. Uh, And then also, um, this is kind of another uh, public service announcement for you as well, related to this topic. Uh, If you're interested in looking at some of my teachings on that book, jump over to my YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and uh, just search my name, and you'll find my channel there. Um, on that note, that channel is still in uh, experimental mode, I guess you could say that. What, what, what do they call it when they're rolling out new software, beta testing, something like that? So, you know, backstory on that, probably about 10 years ago, actually, to be honest with you, uh, it goes back farther than that. Uh, when I first started podcasting uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, I thought about uh, actually doing Vodcasting at that point in time, and uh, it just seemed a little bit too uh, complicated uh, for what I was able to do at that moment. And the technology was not as good as it is today, and so uh, I went into the podcasting uh, world. But uh, about ten years ago, ten or twelve years ago, I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, I started I started a, a YouTube channel, and I was just just randomly posting a few interviews. Uh, on there that I had with uh, with certain individuals, and then I just stopped. You know, I didn't didn't do anything else with it. And then uh, I guess it was about uh, two years ago now. I started periodically posting videos on there, and and have done that off and on. I'm really just praying through the process. You know, is this wise stewardship with uh, with the opportunity and the time that I have and the resources that I have. And so um, the, the verdict is still out. So there's some videos there on uh, This Week in Mission History. I often do uh, some videos related to significant historical individuals or moments within the advancement of the gospel uh, that, if you like the historical issues, those are there. But then at the same time, I'm doing some some one-off kind of teachings uh, related to various topics of the of the moment, and, uh, and then, of course, I did several on apostolic imagination. So I'm still posting videos on there. In fact, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and uh, be posting regularly uh, at my YouTube channel over the next, uh, uh, well, several weeks uh, for some time now. And so if you have not subscribed, let me encourage you to do that, to jump over there and, uh, and subscribe uh, to my, my YouTube channel. I do not uh, j- just simply take what you are hearing on this podcast and post it on my YouTube channel. Uh, I, I, I don't do that. I, I try to provide a, a different uh, set of resources over there that are unrelated to, I won't say unrelated, but they're not the same as what you would find here Uh, At Strike the Match. And so uh, if you find that of value to you over there, uh, I appreciate your subscription, appreciate your um, your comments, uh, your your thumbs up on the videos, Uh, you know, you know, the routine in this YouTube world. Uh, because again, I, I'm trying to uh, to assess. You know, is is the development of a, of a set of video resources at a, vid, at a video channel related to uh, matters of of missiology and evangelism and leadership issues uh, in today's world? Is that something that is going to be beneficial to the body of Christ. And so I know uh, many of you uh, are uh, really committed to this podcast, but um, just want to let you know of another resource that's over there. So let me encourage you to jump over there and check that out, if you wouldn't mind. I certainly appreciate that as I'm going through this evaluation period with uh, with that resource also. Well, hey, that brings us to today's topic, and that is... Um, in the realm of theology of mission, uh, as we look at a biblical approach to understanding this issue. uh, And that's the plan over the next uh, several episodes uh, here at Strike the Match. We will be going through through the various uh, genre of the literature in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so in the next episode, I will begin by looking at mission in Torah. And so we'll examine uh, what does uh, what does Torah have to say about this concept. But before we jump into into the actual texts and categories of biblical texts uh, themselves, I, I want to spend uh, just a moment addressing the issue of the God who sins. So if you remember from episode number one, and if you haven't had a chance to download that and listen to that, let me encourage you to take a look at episode number one that was just recently posted uh, here at season eight. And if you remember in that episode, my my concern that's that's driving a great deal of um, of what, uh, what I'm talking about in this season, and that I have written in my... Um, in my new book, "Theology of Mission: A Concise Biblical Theology on This Topic," is that the church has, for the most part, taken only only a few biblical texts, only a few biblical passages, off of which, or excuse me, onto which we then build our theology of mission. In other words, our understanding of what it means to be engaged in mission in the world. And what it means to to practically, methodologically speaking and and strategically as well, uh, what it means to be engaged in this great commission activity in the world. And so we, we we've only taken just a handful of passages. And while those passages are right and good and they're biblical, we think of the Matthew uh, account of the Great Commission, maybe Acts 1-8, Matthew 24, go and preach the gospel to all nations. The reality is, is is that there is so, so much more to this notion of of what we today have come to call mission than just a few proof texts. And whenever we begin to just prove text, what we we believe and then what we practically do, it can lead to a whole host of problems, practically speaking, uh, as well as convictionally speaking. And I think church history is filled with many of those challenges, many of those, those problems that we see out there. Uh, we talked uh, in the previous episode about the importance of a missional hermeneutic, and so I won't go back and repeat that. Uh, but one of the things that I mentioned, and I'll, I'll allude to this again uh, a little bit later, and then, of course, it's going to pop up as we go through Torah and the Prophets and the writings and into the into the New Testament uh, corpus as well, and that is throughout the uh, throughout the Bible, I think we see what what I refer to as a pattern of purpose. Uh, it is this this pattern of sending... Of of this message is being proclaimed of hope, but it's a message of hope through judgment. Uh, we see in this pattern of purpose uh, the entering into relationship with God. Uh, we see in this pattern uh, the the face of God shining upon people, and therefore they receive His blessings, and then they live out this kingdom ethic which in turn drives them, leads them back into the world to live out the kingdom ethic and deliver a message of hope through, through judgment. And so that pattern repeats itself. So we talked about that in episode number one uh, during this season. So with that sort of as backstory, just as a, uh, just as a moment of a refreshment, let's begin to talk about some new things. And that is uh, the issue of the God who sins, if you will. I-, I-, I, want to, I want to give us an overview of God's apostolic nature, if you will. God's apostolic nature. So whenever we look at the biblical storyline, I think that it reveals a God who remains faithful to his promises, which require the ongoing sending of himself and his servants into a tragically suffering and deeply needed needed world, or excuse me, deep deeply needy world, sorry about that, um, to accomplish his mission of redemption and restoration. So when we look at this, the, the narrative that flows from Genesis to Revelation, it is a narrative of a God who, who not only comes Himself into His created order, but He sends, He sends His, his servants uh, to those that are in need. And it's all about that process which He is working to bring about the redemption of individuals and the restoration of a groaning creation, so I know that this is, nothing, this is a statement that's nothing new, and you've heard this for, for many years now, and that is, you know, mission began with God, all right? So, so we have to understand that. Mission is not something that was developed by the Church. It's not an activity developed by the Church. It's not, it's not an activity that the Church came up with because the parousia did not occur uh, when they thought it was going to happen. There are some scholars out there that believe that uh, the driving uh, to the nations, if you will, was actually an afterthought. It was as a secondary issue. When the second coming of Christ did not happen uh, in the uh, desired time in the first century, uh, by the desired time in the first century, that the church came up with a plan, and they then started going to the nations to preach to the nations. So we have to understand that's not the case. Uh, when you look at the Bible, you see that mission began with God, it is sustained by God, and it will culminate with God, all right? Mission belongs to, to Him, and that is something that we must, we must keep in mind. Now, the interesting thing, as I mentioned in the previous episode, is that the Church, for the most part, uh, we have not become serious In two thousand years of church history, we have not become serious about about understanding, defining, discussing uh, this concept of theology of mission. Uh, It really it really begins uh, with great zeal in the nineteen thirties, and so because of that, there are there are significant limitations, and that is we barely we don't even have a century. Of, of deep theological discussion on this topic you know, behind us, so to speak. It's not like the topic of Trinity. It's not like the topic of many of the other uh, doctrines that we talk about. It, it doesn't mean that the Church never went. It doesn't mean that the Church didn't talk about Great Commission activities and making disciples and going to the nations. But as far as significant and robust theological discussion and depth, uh, that really... Really doesn't happen until uh, about the 1930s, uh, and 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 then it begins to take off from there. And and there's there are a lot of reasons for that. And I I won't go to, go into it in this episode. I talked about that in a previous episode. I write about that in Apostolic Imagination. So I'll point you to to those resources that are there. Another thing that is very important for us to understand when we think about uh, this God who sends Himself and sends His people into the world is that mission did not begin at Pentecost. All right, it did not begin at Pentecost, and and I would also add that it did not begin in the first century. It did not begin uh, as near and dear to my heart as Galatians four four is. It did not begin with the incarnation, and so as we will we will think about in the next episode, it, it, we, see, we see the foundation for the apostolic work of the Church actually being established in Torah, actually being established there in the first five books of the Old Testament, even more specifically in the book of Genesis. So what do we see? Well, just to, again, again, a quick overview of this God who sins. Well, in the beginning, God sent Himself. God sent himself. And so what we find when we get into the scriptures is the God who is transcendent is also a God who is imminent. And he's, he's not only an immanent being that, that comes into his created order, but he communicates both before the fall and after the fall in such a way that the cosmos responds to his will we hear man or we have man and woman uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 they they hear him speak and they they understand his language he sends himself into time and space and and communes with his his creation and so while he is lofty and distant and unknowable and transcendent the reality is is that as one person said back in the 20th century he is there and he is not silent And so he does condescend to his created order. He sends himself, there's that apostolic nature, he sends himself into the created order and communicates in such a way, he contextualizes himself in such a way that the created order is able to understand him to the degree that he desires to make himself known. Now, Isaiah 45, verse 18 says that the earth was created to be filled with God's creation, if you will, God's people, if you will. And and we see that in, in Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. The, the plan from the beginning was always that image bearers of God would fill planet earth, glorifying him. Now, that was given in Genesis chapter 1 verse uh, 27 28 prior to the fall but as we'll talk in the next episode lord willing uh, that is actually repeated post fall with Noah in act excuse me in Genesis chapter 9 actually twice in Genesis chapter 9 and so what we find in in the beginning is that God sends himself into into creation, into uh, the garden, if you will. We have this early account showing God's mission is already taking place. He comes to Adam and Eve as a part of his fellowship, his interaction with them prior to the fall, and he comes to them as a part of his mission after the fall. He comes to them to address sin, and, and this is a reflection of the gospel. When, when in In Genesis chapter three, verse eight, when when they hide themselves from God because He's walking in the garden, the, the, what's be, the, the impression that you get is not that they're hiding themselves because they're shocked that God has sent himself into the garden. You get the impression that this was a this was a regular occurrence. This was a was an ongoing activity. This was a perennial event uh, in their fellowship with God. The, they hide themselves because of their sin and shame. Not because they were, they were shaken up that God would visit them. Not because they were startled because God sent himself to, to connect with them. But he comes to them even in a post-fallen context, in a post-fallen condition, and, and he, he addresses their sin. Now, we see, again, we see this concept of the pattern of purpose showing up, that when God sends himself, he comes to Adam and Eve, uh, the message that is communicated there, and we'll, we'll plan to get into that in the next episode, the message that is communicated there is a message of hope, but it's a message of judgment. That, that there will be one who will crush the head of the deceiver, but, but judgment comes. Judgment will come uh, as a part of that message. And yet, there can continue to be relationship and fellowship between uh, the man and the woman and their Creator but what we'll see is that he will still bless them, even in their their fallen state, as they continue to fill the earth and multiply. Now, one of the other big things that we see running through the Bible, kind of getting an overview of this God who sins, is this notion of God making his people a blessing, that he blesses People so that they will be a blessing, and clearly this shows up with Abraham. We see it with the children of Israel in Exodus chapter nineteen with Moses. You know, David uh, is given this, um, you know, this covenant in Second Samuel chapter seven. The prophets go to the people of God, calling them to repentance, even in light of the uh, doom of Assyria on the horizon or the doom of Babylon on the horizon. And so one of the things that we, we see is that one is blessed in this relationship with the apostolic God who comes to them. One is blessed, but they're blessed to be a blessing to others. And that blessing to others means that they are showing through their actions what it means to be blessed, and they are sharing through their words what it means to be blessed, and that sharing through the words is, is a message of hope through judgment. Uh, when we get into the New Testament, we see the word that was sent, that God came to dwell uh, among his people. John picks up on that in John chapter 1, and and that whole concept of the word became flesh and, and tabernacled or dwelt among us in John chapter 1 hearkens us back to the fact that God shows up, he sends himself into the camp of the people of Israel and dwells in the tabernacle, if you will. And so we see in the New Testament, the Word becomes flesh, that Jesus was sent from God. And we have hope, we have blessing, we have relationship uh, that comes, but judgment was necessary as the Lamb was to be slain. Uh, We see in the New Testament, being sent as uh, Christ's witnesses, that the apostolic God, the apostolic uh, uh, God, shows up, but he also is one who ends up sending his people. Uh, The Spirit comes upon them. The Spirit is sent. There's that concept of sending again. Uh, The presence of God transitioned from walking with Adam in the garden, dwelling among Israel in the tabernacle and temple, uh, abiding among Israel as the Nazarene, to now we we'll get into the New Testament, post-Pentecost—to now filling everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. The nations were no longer expected to travel to Mount Zion to hear the word of the Lord. The community of God's people under the Messiah are the royal priesthood and holy nation, as Peter talks about, the temple, and they're filled with the Spirit. They They, they they are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul would talk about in his first epistle to the Corinthians. They are these witnesses of the Messiah who've been sent. They are empowered and sent to the nations by the Father, by the Son, uh, by the Spirit in what they are doing. So one of the things that we'll see as we journey through uh, the Old Testament and New Testament literature is this notion of... The God who sends—that God is an apostolic God, and He He takes the initiative by sending Himself uh, in a variety of different means. Uh, he comes into the garden. He sends His prophets. He uh, sends the Son. He sends the Spirit. He sends the people, uh, and we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit wrapped up in this notion of a theology of mission. And so, if it's biblical, if it's a biblical theology of mission, it is Trinitarian in its understanding, and in its expression. Now, folks, before we, uh, before we wrap up, there are, there are a couple of terms, actually four terms in particular, that I need to address uh, with you uh, that are the technical aspects of this, um, uh, this discipline or this study of theology of mission. And uh, those terms are universality and particularity, and uh, the old concepts of centripetal and centrifugal. So let me just take a moment just to comment on these because I think they're important and they will be helpful to us as we go through this journey together. So theologians, when they talk about the theology of mission, they will often refer to uh, refer to uh, two concepts. Uh, they'll actually most of them will often use the phrase universalism and particularism. I don't like that word universalism because it communicates a, uh, a, a you know a, a unified or, or a universal salvation, if you will, regardless you know even if one does not repent and place faith in Christ. So I prefer to use the language of universality and particularity. Let me explain what that means. God desires, God desires to bless the nations. That is a matter of universality. But he works through an elect people. That is the concept of particularity to accomplish his mission. So universality, God's desire is to bless all nations, Jew and Gentile. But in order to accomplish that... What we see throughout the Bible is something that is very particular. He gets very specific in working through a particular people to accomplish the blessing of the nations. So, very important matter to to remember. Now, when God elects Israel, for example, in Abraham to be his people, he is not showing, keep this in mind, he's not showing a rejection of the nations. Rather, this is an amazing privilege that comes with a tremendous responsibility on behalf of the nations. So, election, as we'll talk about it, does not entail self-glorification, but it calls the elect into a life of service to the world for God's glorification. Two other words, centripetal and centrifugal. Old words been around for at least since the 1930s, Uh, what are those referring to when we talk about theology of mission? Well, they're dealing more with issues related to methods by which God extends his universal blessings to all peoples through a particular people. And so... When you begin to, to look in the Old Testament, scholars will often talk about the centripetal method. Centripetal has the letter P in it, so I think of the word pulling. It's, it's the method whereby uh, the nations are drawn to Israel, they're pulled to Israel, particularly the temple in Jerusalem, to learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and experience his blessings. Uh, the other language that is used is the centrifugal approach. Uh, centrifugal has an F in it, I think, about fleeing or, be, or, or being flung flinging, if you will, out to the nations. And we see more about this in the New Testament, this this pattern of being sent, being flung out from Jerusalem to the nations. Now, we have to be careful, because I think that while this dichotomy of methodology has been accepted for many years among scholars, with the centripetal approach primarily represented in the Old Testament and the centrifugal approach primarily represented in the New Testament, of course, Walt Kaiser would, would disagree on that, um, while I think that we it's been helpful and it's widely accepted, the reality is, is I think this understanding is reductionistic. So while the overwhelming evidence I believe in the Old Testament points to a centripetal paradigm, we do see examples of a centrifugal approach in the Old Testament. I think Jonah's an example. I think Elijah when he goes to the widow of Zarephath is an example. I think Isaiah 66 is an example. Uh, we see that there. It's even more problematic when we get into the New Testament and we begin to define the method of God's people in blessing the nations as primarily being a centrifugal, a flinging, a, 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 a being, being thrust out paradigm, because the church is to live out the kingdom ethic so others may see the good works and glorify God. As the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's people are not only going to the nations, but the nations are being pulled, they're being attracted to those that live out this kingdom ethic being the expression of this temple, if you will. And so, those are some important concepts I think we need to keep in mind. Hey, we've got a lot to cover over the next several episodes. I hope that this uh, episode has been helpful to you as we begin to gear up in talking about theology of mission. Uh, We can't get there until we talk about and understand that God is a God who sins. He is an apostolic God. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Payne. You can find JD on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at JD underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit JD_Pain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes, and we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.